0: Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Jonah. As we conclude our study of Jonah, and then next week we will turn back into Matthew. So next week we'll pick up in Matthew 5 where we left off and and jump into the Sermon on the Mount. But this morning we have some more time to spend in the final chapter of Jonah. You know, Many of you in here know, or some of you know, that I I appreciate a, a good joke. A good practical joke especially and I uh, enjoy seeing one unfold. I, I never forget growing up uh, in my opinion one of the best things we did was when my mom's best friend turned 40 we baked her a cake and I think my dad and I had the biggest hand dad did most of it I just kind of watched but we baked her this incredible cake I mean it was beautiful and we took it over to their house and got it out and she was excited and we sang happy birthday and and uh, we, we had, had her go ahead and we said, cut the cake, you know. And she got her knife out and went. And when she went to cut the cake, the whole cake just went, <laughs> just started shaking. And she couldn't cut it because the knife just kept moving the whole cake and it was shimmying. And the reason it did this was because the cake was just a piece of foam rubber that you would use for a seat cushion. And we had covered it in icing. And What was inside was not a cake, it was just foam rubber, and so we just thought that was the greatest thing. You know, as a kid, I I think that set me on the trajectory of enjoying moments like that. In Jonah 4, we kind of see something similar. Not really a joke, per se, but we see that what was on the outside was not as telling as what was on the inside. We get a glimpse of the heart of Jonah, a heart that really does not reflect the mercy of of his God, Let's read together this morning. Jonah chapter 4. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11. The word of the Lord says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. We come to this chapter, and as we do, I, I, I want to just cause you to think first about, and we've thought about this several times through the book, what it would be like if the book ends at 310. If we just get to the end of the third chapter and we don't have the fourth chapter, we, we come to that point and, and really we, we get to the end of, of there. We, we hear that, that God saw what they had done. He, he turned, or they turned from their evil way and God relented of the disaster. We get to that point and we go, wow, this is pretty impressive. Jonah has learned his lesson, he's, he's done his job. The people have repented. That was a really nice ending. Thanks be to God. We see displays of his mercy and we move on. But, but chapter 4 reveals to us the true problem. It, it, it peels away the, the icing off the cake, you might say, to reveal the heart of Jonah that did not reflect the mercy of God. His heart was not in alignment with the God he served, the God he was called to be an ambassador of, the God he represented. He had a, a case of, you might say, misplaced authority. A case where we, where we see in chapter 4 that Jonah kind of puts himself in the place of God. He thinks he is the authority, not God. It is he who determines who should receive mercy and who should not. We see Jonah's heart revealed. So let's look at these first three verses. What we find out about Jonah's heart. The first thing we read in verse 1 is that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Exceedingly. And he was angry. The the Hebrew here is the most harsh it can possibly be to express jonah's anger jonah is he, he is infuriated he, he he is outraged he's just so in anger it just his, his blood boils when he thinks about what god has done and, and and i don't know about you but i look at that and and i read it displeased jonah exceedingly and he was angry and i just kind of I, I actually wrote in my bible here one time so what <laughs> who cares Jonah you're upset about it that's okay get over it you're not God we're not worried about if it displeased Jonah right this is God and is God's prerogative so Jonah can just get over it think about what he's so upset about he's upset about what we read in verse 10 that that the people repented and God relented Jonah wanted justice he wanted the Ninevites to pay why? Because they were enemies. They were evil. They were wicked. They were not God's chosen people. He wanted them to be brought to justice. That was the only thing in his view, is bring the Ninevites to justice. We find out, Jonah is very honest in verse 2. He says, he says is this not what I said? Is this not what I said when I flee? This is why I made haste to go to Tarshish. This is the reason he fled. He fled to try to deter God to prevent him from doing what Jonah expected him to do. Jonah expects him. It's the the passage that that Matt began. I think it was in Psalm 145. He began with us declaring and and hearing that, that God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And Jonah says, I know that's who you are. And because I knew that, I fled. Because I didn't want you to be who you are towards the Ninevites I knew you were a gracious God he's trying to in his way deter God's mercy and what we see here is we see this great contrast of character between God and Jonah Jonah is here angered over the repentance of the Ninevites when he sees that they repented and we, he sees it that God relents he's angered over that And we have that standing in stark contrast to the God of Scripture who we heard from from Arthur a few moments ago. What did we read about? We read about the pictures in, in Luke 15, where there is much rejoicing and celebration in heaven when one sinner repents. The God who celebrates the repentance of the sinner is contrasted with the prophet who is angered by the repentance of the sinner. It's a great contrast that we see here. Did they deserve Punishment? The Ninevites? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it was not Jonah's call to make. It wasn't Jonah's call, it was God's. So we see two problems here. Two problems in Jonah's life and his heart. One is that Jonah suffers from somewhat of a a spiritual amnesia, you might say spiritual amnesia do you remember you may flip back a couple pages to chapter 2 verse 9 what does he declare he he prays remember he's in the the belly of the fish and he has that prayer about God's deliverance and and God's might and and what God had done he ends with a declaration what is that declaration salvation belongs to who the Lord Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord he boldly proclaims that well he's stating that in reference to his own salvation God has saved him. He's he's shown mercy to him, and Jonah prays, and he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. He was the prophet who was a happy recipient of God's mercy in verses 1 through 9, and now he's furious over God's mercy. Oh, the the inconsistency we hear in Jonah and see in Jonah is is really quite shocking. Because Jonah's forgotten a a key phrase there, right? He's forgotten when when he declared in, in 2 9, and we read. We, we read these verses a few weeks ago in, in Psalm 3.8. We hear the same thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord, right? Revelation 7.10 where they're surrounded, the saints are surrounded around the throne. And, and we see that they are saying salvation belongs to our God. The, the key phrase that, that Jonah forgets is what? Salvation what? Belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to Jonah right? It's not something that, that the Lord says, hey, I can bring salvation, but, but you need to work it, and you need to decide who gets it. It's all up to you. No, Jonah has forgotten that the Lord is the Lord of salvation, and he has wrongly decided that he can determine to whom the Lord shows mercy. Now, listen, before we go and run after and say that rotten jonah i can't believe that guy we need to be reminded this is a common temptation for man we can easily fall into the place where we think we are the ones who determine who should be saved or how god should save but we need to remember that the problem is we do not tell god what to do god acts as god wills God is sovereign we are not he is the Lord of salvation it belongs to him and he has mercy on whom he has mercy you and I are simply recipients of God's gracious unmerited or his unmerited grace and his loving mercy that's who we are we're recipients and that's why we worship him that's why we stopped and we we looked at Romans 9 before the sermon because Romans 9 is a is a very clear passage it talks about God's mercy where where Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, talking about God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now here's verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? Answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Who's God? I'm not. You're not. He is. He is sovereign. He is mighty. He is the Lord of salvation. We are recipients of His mercy, as 1 Peter 2, 9-10 to says, where, where Peter writes, You're a chosen race of royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, here's the the key part. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We cannot forget that the Lord is the Lord of salvation, that salvation belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to me. We have received mercy, and we give thanks and praise to God for that. The second problem we see in Jonah here is we see in Jonah the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. You see, Jonah is selective of who he's okay with being saved. He he was totally fine with himself being saved, right? He was totally good with that. He prays, he celebrates that salvation belongs to the Lord. And and we even see, if you flip back to, to 2 Kings 14, if you want to flip back there for a moment or I'll just read it to you. But 2 Kings 14, we see again, we see the partiality of Jonah. Jonah has a, a real problem, right, going to, to preach and, and go to the Ninevites. He has a real problem when they repent and God relents from, from punishing them. Now, that stands in contrast to what we read in 2 Kings 14. Listen to what happens in 2 Kings 14, our other reference, what we know about Jonah. We read there, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So he was, Jeroboam was continuing in the sins of his ancestors. He was continuing to lead the people to sin. He was continuing to rebel against the Lord. Now verse 25, though, listen to what happens through Jeroboam's reign he restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Ereba, according, get this, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, who? Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath hepher For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel that was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under the heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God, God displayed his mercy to his people, a people who absolutely did not deserve it, a people who were sinful, who were living in wickedness, who were living in rebellion. And he delivered them, he saved them through Jeroboam, and the word that came to his people was from who? It was from Jonah. It was Jonah. Jonah's okay with delivering God's word to his people about repentance and about God saving them, about their prosperity, even though they're living in wickedness. Why? Because Jonah is showing some partiality. He, he's totally fine with that. He's totally fine with it if it's his people. But man, when it's the Ninevites, he doesn't want to see God being merciful. Here's the problem is we don't have the right to select who we speak God's word to. We don't have the right to do what Jonah did, to say, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to deliver God's word to my people, but I'm not going to go and deliver God's word to those people. That is not our right. We don't decide who hears the word of God. James calls that out in James 2, 1 to 13. We won't read that whole passage, but you can just jot that down in your notes. James 2, 1 to 13. James calls partiality of sin. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of glory. And he goes on to talk about if, you know, if, if one individual comes into church and they, they're fancy, they look like they're wealthy, and you pay a great attention to them, and then another person comes in, it looks like they're not, and, and perhaps they, they're struggling and they walk in and you go, oh, I'm not going to pay any attention to them. I'm going to really give a lot of attention to this person. And I'm going to tell them about Christ. I'm going to minister to them and share the gospel with them. He says, listen, that is, that is wrong. That is absolutely sinful. It's sinful to show partiality. He says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He finishes that section in verse 13. He says to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, under the gospel, under, under Christ. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment oh man jonah would have done well to hear james 2 13 and to hear mercy triumphs over judgment jonah so we see jonah's heart revealed a heart that has forgotten who salvation belongs to a heart who is a heart that is very willing to show partiality based on who he thinks should receive mercy so god teaches him a lesson in verses 4 through 10 verses 4 through 10 god's lesson for jonah in verse 4, there is a deafening question asked where God looks and he says, Do you do well to be angry? After all that had happened, every place we've come to or gone, gone and come to now in, in Jonah. God simply looks at Jonah, an angry little prophet, and says, Do you do well to be angry? Do you do you do well to be angry? Is is your anger righteous Jonah? Is it it warranted? I mean, notice when when you think about Jonah's prayer here. This this is the second time we see Jonah pray. There's nothing in Jonah's prayer in chapter 4 that talks about God's will or God's glory. He's not seeking God's will. He's not seeking God's glory. He's not angered over that. He's angered over the fact that the people repented and God relented from that. He's quickly angered over it. As soon as he sees it. It displeases him exceedingly, it says. Listen, we do not we do do we not live in a day in which we're easily angered? Do we not see the same thing often that that those around us are easily angered? We are not immune to the same thing. That we see something happen; it's not the way we wanted it to happen. We see something that 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 happens over here, and we were saying we were praying for it to be like this. It's not the way we wanted it, and we get angry about that. we get upset about that. That's why we, we do well to remember again the words of James. In 1:19 to20, He says, "Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to, to become angry." Why? Because James says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We need to be careful about what we're angered over. We need to listen to those words that we are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Jonah would probably be in a really good spot if he had been able to hear the words of James. When he sees what's happened, if he knew, okay, I need to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Thank you, God, for that word. Because right now, I'm really struggling with anger. But no, Jonah just runs headlong and is exceedingly angry and cries out to God. And the question is, do you do well to be angry? I think this is a question that we probably need to ask of ourselves or be confronted with ourselves. When we're angered about something, do we do well to be angry? What causes your anger? What is it that infuriates you? Are you angered when the name of the Lord is maligned as much as when your name is? Am I? Am I more concerned about my good name or am I more concerned about God's good name? Are, are are we angered as much when the work of the Lord is hindered, as we are when our own work is hindered, our own plans? Are are we angered more when our preferences are infringed upon than when God's word is infringed upon? What what brings about more 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 anger in our li- in our hearts? What what makes us just kind of get our blood boil a little bit? Is it all about? attacks on the kingdom of God or the kingdoms of me am I just worried about myself that I look like Jonah and go this is what I want God and if I don't get what I want I'm gonna be really angry about that listen none of us like temper tantrums every adult in here has been one who's seen temper tantrums we've probably all thrown them at some point in our life what we see in verses 5 through 9 is we see Jonah throwing a temper tantrum. That's his his response. When, when God asks him that question, do you do well to be angry? What does Jonah do? He he goes out of the city and he sits down and builds a booth for himself. Right? And what is he doing? He, he's sitting there to see what would become of the city. Now, this is an interesting thing, right? God's only already shown mercy. God's relented, and he's prayed to God, and he, he says all this, and then he goes to sit out and see what happens. It's as though Jonah has kind of made his plea, stated his case. He goes out, and, and then he's going to say, I'm going to see if God changes his mind now. I've shown him. i told him what I think. <laughs> really? Okay, good for you, Jonah. You just sit there all you want. Well, we see in verses 6 through 9 that then God sovereignly uses nature to really teach Jonah a very clear lesson. Right, We see three times God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. Or your version of Scripture may say God provided. So in verse 6, he appointed or provided a plant. In verse uh, 7, he appointed, provided a worm. In verse 8, he appointed, provided a scorching east wind. God is controlling all of nature to remind Jonah what? I am sovereign. I rule and you do not. I am working, and I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm sovereign over all creation, and and buddy, I'm sovereign over deciding who is going to be shown mercy. Because I'm God, and you're not. Jonah is simply self-absorbed. How do we we know that? Well, look at him. Look what he does. God God appoints a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Oh, we're so glad. Uh, We hope Jonah will be comfortable at this point, right? That's all we want. That's all Jonah wanted. He was exceedingly what? Glad. It is the opposite of 4 1. In 4 1, he's exceedingly angry, and now we read that he's exceedingly glad. Why? Because he, he's come to go, Man, I'm so glad. I'm rejoicing in God's mercy. He's such a great and merciful God. I praise his name. No. He's exceedingly glad because of the plant, because he's comfortable. It makes him comfortable. So now he's happy. And this is surface level. But then what do we see? God appoints a worm and it attacks the plant. The plant withers. The sun rises and God appoints a scorching east wind. It beats down on the head of Jonah so that he became faint. And what do we see Jonah do? He asked that he might die. <laughs> There's his temper tantrum. It's better for me to die than to live. And God asked him the question again. Do you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Oh, yeah. Yeah, God. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I mean, this is a serious temper tantrum Jonah's throwing here. But look at it. It's all based on his comfort. It's based on blessings of the Lord. It's not based on God showing mercy. I, I just wonder. I I just stopped and... Mulled over this this week and thought about the fact that, that John is focused on his circumstances and on, on, on his desires, on, on, on what makes him comfortable. And, and I just wonder if there are times in our life where we're more angered over the loss of God's blessings than we are over doing more, or, or than we are concerned about doing God's will. Are we, are we more upset about the fact that? I may not have this blessing that God's given me. You understand in this moment, God is not required to have this plant grow up over Jonah. He's not required to cause this to give him shade. It's not something that Jonah had merited. But yet, Jonah enjoyed it, and he was exceedingly glad. And then he gets upset when it's gone. The comfort of a blessing of the Lord is taken away from him, and he is enraged. Over the loss of a blessing. How many times would we say that this could be the same for us? Things we don't have to have, but things that we do have that we're blessed with. If those things could be taken away, we could lose them. How often are we enraged over that and we throw the spiritual temper tantrum because we could lose a blessing that God has given us and we totally forget the call of God's will in our life. We totally forget what he's called us to do because we're so wrapped up and so frustrated with the potential loss of that blessing. I think that's a serious question we need to ask in the American church. We have a lot here that we're not required to have. And if you do not understand that, then you need to travel outside of the United States. We do not have to have everything we have here this morning. It could be gone. If it is, are we going to get more outraged about a nice building, a fancy microphone, land? Or are we going to say, you know what, God, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We are going to praise your name no matter what happens. And we are going to advance the gospel no matter what happens. Because we worship you. We do not worship your blessings. See, what we have here, and we get to the end of Jonah, verse 10 and 11. God says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into the being in a night, in Paris the night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left from their right hand, and all so much cattle? Trip! Mic drop moment is what that is. If you don't know what a mic drop moment is, that is exactly what we have in Jonah, where you get to the end and go, well, that's all that needs to be said about that. Let's go home. Right? What is Jonah going to say? Jonah's... Pitching a temper tantrum about a vine, and God says, Listen, you're upset about a vine that you didn't work to cultivate, you didn't even plant it, you have nothing to do with it. You're upset about that vine, but yet there are over 120,000 people in Nineveh, and I am not supposed to be upset with that. I'm not supposed to pity them. Really, Jonah? It, it, does it remind you of Job? Do you remember the book of Job? You remember when, when Job goes through all that he goes through and he stands before the Lord and he's, he's questioning God and he, he's asking all these questions to God and then God speaks. Listen to what Jonah's, or Job's response is in Job 40, verses 1 through 5. God speaks and he asks Jonah questions. I mean, golly, I'm getting my J's mixed up. He asks Job questions, right? And he's asking Job, where were you when this happened? Where were you when this happened? Where were you when, 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 when? And Job is just standing there going, you know, there's nothing to say. It's a mic drop moment. And Job's response, he says, "Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it." That's what that's what the Lord said to Job. So Job answers the Lord and says, "Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further." <laughs> So uh, God then proceeds to talk to Job out of a whirlwind and continues to overwhelm him with his might and his glory and his sovereignty and how magnificent he is. And so we come over to Job 42, and Job answers the Lord after God speaks again. He says, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I Will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Man, Jonah would have done well to learn from Job. Job is confronted by God and God overwhelms him with his magnificence and all Job can do is step back and say, I repent, I had no idea what I was talking about. I am a little man. And I I pray that when we throw these spiritual temper tantrums and we get all worked up about something over here and our anger is sinful anger, that God would confront us and be merciful to us and we would learn from Job and we would look to God and repent before him. And before we close, we're left with this interesting statement from God in verse 11, where he says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? What does this mean? Well, what does verse 11 mean? I think the easiest way to explain this is that it simply means that the Ninevites lack knowledge to know how to escape their plight. They, they did not know how to escape the plight they're in. It doesn't mean that they are morally innocent. The, the reason I would say that is, is two reasons. One, we read in chapter three verses five through nine, what is, what is their action when they're confronted? What, are their, what is their action? They repent. They knew they're wrong, okay? So they, they repented. and then in verse, uh, chapter one, verse two, what does God call their actions? Evil. Chapter 1, verse 2, rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. They, they were not, it wasn't like this moral neutrality where they were, they were guiltless, okay? They were not without guilt. They knew not of salvation. They weren't guiltless. The Ninevites stood guilty before God, deserving of his wrath for the wickedness they had done, but they did not know how to escape the trouble that awaited them so jonah brings a very important message to them you can continue in your wickedness or you can repent and turn to god if you continue in your wickedness your city will be overthrown you repent and turn to god you will be saved listen for us today we cannot forget that this same situation is in our world today in our lives today there are people living in the same exact state the same condition in our world today. Paul said in Romans 1, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? People who have never heard the gospel. Why? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are men and women living in sin, living in rebellion, that are without excuse, that have not heard the gospel. They don't know Christ. That's why Romans 10, 14 to 15 is so important where Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Listen, you need to understand those two bookends in Romans. I need to understand that. I need to know the reality that God has revealed His nature, His divine nature, His power in creation, and it is evident to man. Man may suppress the truth, but man is without excuse. And so all men in this world who are living outside of Christ will die and will go to hell without Christ. That is why we must go and tell them how can they call on Him and whom they have not believed, and how can they believe if they have not heard, and how will they hear if no one goes and preaches to them. We must be a people who are going and telling. Just like uh, Jonah needed to be a people, a person who was going and telling. The question is this, is do we share the concern of our God? Do we share his heart? Or is there a contrast between my heart and God's heart? Do we see the pity? Do we share the pity? 4.11, he says, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? That that word is like literally just showing tears in my eyes. Do I look upon those who do not know Christ, who are living in sin, living in rebellion, living in wickedness as a child of wrath, storing up wrath for them? Paul says in Romans 2, they are storing up wrath. Do I look at them? Do I have compassion on them? Does it bring tears to my eyes? Do I have pity upon them? Do I have the same pity that, that Jesus had in Luke 19, 41 to 44, where he sits up on the mountaintop and he looks over Jerusalem and he sees the city? He drew near the city, it says, and he wept over it. He wept over it. Why? Because the city was living in sin. It didn't know what was before it. Do we have that same compassion that Jesus had in Matthew 9, 36 to 38, when he looks out and he sees all the people and he says he saw the crowds and he had compassion or pity for them? Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do we have that same compassion that Jesus showed in Mark 6.34 when he, he came ashore from the, the sea and there was this great crowd and it says he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. What did he do? He starts teaching them. He starts teaching them. Do we share the pity of our Lord who was moved to tears over the state of sinners? Do the state of sinners move you to tears? Or do you not care? Do you have any concern for someone who doesn't know Christ? Or is it just like, oh, they're not a Christian, I am. As though it's like, they're a Carolina fan and I'm a Kentucky fan, like it's no big deal. If you're more concerned about what team somebody pulls for and roots for than you are concerned about their spiritual standing before the Lord, then brother or sister, your prerogatives, your your heart is in the wrong spot. Do we share the pity of our God? When we look and we see the ignorance and sin of unbelievers, it should lead us to gospel proclamation, not justice declaration. Justice is not ours. It is the Lord's. Salvation belongs to him. We are called to share the gospel. We need to stay in our lane and do what he's called us to do. We need to be a people who proclaim the gospel, proclaim Christ. So as we close our time in Jonah, I would just pray that we be reminded of three things. One that we be reminded that salvation belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to me. It's not belong to you. It belongs to him. Second, I pray that we be reminded that none of us are immune from stumbling. None of us. Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, who had obediently declared the word of the Lord in 2 Kings 14, stumbles, rebels, runs in this book. None of us are immune from doing the same. So I pray that we would ask Christ to strengthen us to follow Him in obedience. And finally, I pray that we would be and share, that we'd be a merciful people and that we would share the merciful, compassionate heart of our God. May we be a people that reflects His mercy, that rejoices over His mercy when the chief of sinners repents. May we rejoice over the repentance of even one who comes to faith in Christ. Let's pray.